If you have a Bible and you'll read along with us, we're going to take a reading from the book of 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we're going to begin reading in the 12th verse and read down to the 23rd verse. Again, that's 2 Samuel chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse 12 and read down to verse 23. Now, the event here that is preceding our text is David and Israel have gone and taken the Ark of the Covenant, and they are carrying it to Jerusalem, where it's going to have its permanent dwelling place. And just prior to our reading, um, they were pushing it on a cart, it slipped to fall, and Uzzah, you may remember the story, Uzzah reaches out to try to catch it, and he instantly dies. So David takes this ark, and he puts it in someone's house, because he can't discern whether this is from evil or from good. So he takes it for Obed-Edom, is the man's name. Puts it in his house, and Obed-Edom prospers for three months, and so David takes that as a sign, and now it's time to carry the Ark of the Covenant into Israel and into Jerusalem, where it's going to make its um, permanent place. And so... This is the process of them carrying it from one location into Jerusalem where it's going to stay. It says this, verse 12, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And it was told King, and it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went out and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they had... They that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces. He sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was girded with the linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the women as men, to everyone a cake of of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovered himself. And David said unto Michael, It was before the Lord, which chose me before thy father and before all his house, to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord. And I will yet be more vile than thus, and will be base in my own sight. And of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. Therefore Michael the daughter of Saul had no child unto the day of her death." 
That'll conclude our reading today. It's 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 through 23. And uh, please forgive any mistakes that I may have made in the reading today. The title of our message this morning, based on this scripture, is Restoring Heartfelt Worship. Restoring Heartfelt Worship. I suppose our aim is twofold this morning. Um, if you attended, if you attended Do Re Mi this week, I would ask that you especially listen today. Many of our kids are just getting back, and as is the case with some events like this, um, we kind of leave on a high. We're very lifted up and encouraged, and in that state, I obviously would like to cement some things that you learned and experienced there, and so. If you attended that camp this week, I would like you to pay special attention. If you didn't, and you're old, um, I would like you also to listen, because they'll follow you. That's who they'll follow. And so I pray this morning that um, the Lord would, would speak today. The Ark of the Covenant is, I'm going to give just a brief detail before we get into this text this morning, but for anyone that might not know, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol. God commissioned Moses to build this Ark. Think of it like a, a box laid with gold, with many things surrounding it. I won't get to the descriptions of all of it. But it was a place that symbolized the location that God dwelt It was a symbol that illustrated that God was with his people. And so often Moses would go into this tent and he would carry out certain duties in offering things to God. And everywhere they went, they carried this tent known as the tabernacle. And inside this tent was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. They carried around from place to place and they... Crossed after Moses' death, they crossed the river Jordan, and Joshua took it with them into the promised land. When they became an established nation, it became a a special um, symbol. And at one point, we read in the book of 1 Samuel, early in the book of 1 Samuel, that the Philistines came and they captured the Ark of the Covenant. And when news got back to the leaders of Israel, particularly the religious leaders of Israel, it had a drastic impact on them. Eli heard of what happened, and he literally, out of grief and being so stunned, fell off of his sitting place and broke his neck and died. It was a traumatic event. Another woman was caused to go into labor because of her grief. Because what made Israel special, they knew, was not their size, was not their military power. It was nothing but the fact that the true God of the universe was their God. And they had success over other nations, and they were uniquely blessed because God was with them. And now, 
God was revealing to himself through the removal of this symbol, through the removal of this object, that he was no longer dwelling with them in the same sense, abiding them with a special blessing as he had previously. Now, some few months later, I believe it was around seven or eight months later, after a, um, a notable, some notable things transpired, the ark comes back, and yet not in its same fashion. It's not back. And so for almost 20 years, during Saul, the first king of Israel's reign, the Ark of the Covenant is placed in a kind of an obscure location. Even so much that the people didn't exactly know where it was at. It was out in the woods and the land of Ephraim, and there were a few people responsible for it. But Israel was sort of preoccupied. And God's returning presence was not of preeminent concern to them until David. David becomes king, and as the scripture tells us, David has a heart that is after God. More than being seen as a powerful leader, more than as Saul was preoccupied with being known as a great man, if you remember, one of the things that largely bothered Saul was that the people, as they would rejoice, would say that he had killed his thousands, but David killed the ten thousands. And that caused a lot of anger in the heart of Saul, and so much that he sought to kill David. Saul, whenever he felt it was his interest, didn't obey the Lord or the prophet of the Lord, but he went and he did things his way. And because of that, God removed the throne from his house. But here we read of this story where finally it is a suitable time in David's estimation to go and to get the Ark of the Covenant and to bring it back, notably in the center of the kingdom. If we go over to the 132nd Psalm, we'll read about David's heart and his sentiment before this event. He doesn't exactly know where it is. He's heard that it's out somewhere in the woods. He's wanting to go and get it. But it's just rumored to be out there. And he says, I'm not going to be comfortable in my house, living in Israel in this palace. I'm going to weep at night. I'm going to have sleepless nights. I am not going to be at rest until the Ark of the Covenant returns to the center of his people. And this is that event. So I want to build for you this morning this understanding that for many decades... Worship and God's presence had not been amongst the people in the same personal way that God had intended and how it had been previously. And now David, moved by the Spirit of God, was going and taking the symbol and bringing it back. And now it was going to be the central focus of God's people. And so David, the king decides he's going to lead this triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And so we read of these events where David is leading this big procession. And you'll notice he's doing something kind of strange to us. He's dancing. So imagine this big festivities of sorts. You've all uh, no doubt gone to different parades and you've seen 
perhaps different groups dancing along the way or excited along the way and they're celebrating something. Uh, Just here a few days ago, a sports team won a big uh, championship and no doubt going through the streets of San Francisco, there's going to be a large celebration and people are going to be excited and dancing. And here that's what David is doing. Now notice in our day, it is not the owner of this organization that's leading out front dancing because that would be uh, uh, just, uh, just inappropriate in the estimation of most people. But in this case, it's the king. The highest of the high is leading this procession. And the Bible says he is dancing with all of his might. Now, I'm no doubt you've seen somebody dance. Have you seen somebody dance with all their might? Have you ever seen somebody sing with all their might? Isn't it kind of funny to look at, just to be honest? Usually, if you sing with all your might, what do you do with your eyes? Close your eyes, right? And very often, your hands are raised, and you're exerting all of your energy, right? And from the outside, it's kind of humorous for the most part, right? Especially if someone is isolated in that. And yet, that's kind of what David is doing. He's leading this procession. And he's dancing. Now, over in Africa, that's what they do. That's part of their culture is they they dance in service. When they're singing these songs and singing these chants, they're dancing. Now, as they're doing this, behind him is the Ark of the Covenant. And it's being brought into the house of the Lord. Or it's going to be brought into the center of Jerusalem where everything is taking place. It's the hearth, the central point of Israel. And as this festivity is taking place, Michael looks out of her window. Michael, a wife of David, looks out the window and sees David. Sees what he's doing. And here's what it said in verse 16. And she despised him in her heart. Eventually, he goes inside after continuing the celebration. And at night... As he's with his wife, she makes fun of him. She uses one of the few times in scriptures that I can find, sarcasm. And says, how honorable was the king today in front of all of Israel? And then David responds to that, and we'll get to that here in a moment. I think this is a really important thing for us. I hope you'll hear me this morning. The description is kind of strange. But forget what it looks like from our vantage point for a moment. Like forget about how funny it would be if people were dancing in here. Forget how funny it would look if somebody closing their eyes and singing with all of their might. Forget all that. And let's change vantage points. Let's move from our vantage point to God's vantage point for a moment. And look down, and as the Bible tells us earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God looketh not on the outward appearance of man. So he's not concerned with the position of our bodies. He's not concerned with the the accuracy of our tune and our melody, how good our harmony is. As someone is worshiping, the primary thing God's eyes are focused upon is your heart. 
Now we know he sees otherwise, but he disregards those things. Or in other words, it's as though he does not see your body. He can see your body, but his vision is so perfect that he has the ability to know something and not recognize it. That makes sense. So he's zoomed in on your heart. And what he's looking for is a heart of worship. What does the word worship mean? Well, in the original, it means to literally bow down. So we would do this at someone of something of greatness, something that deserves to be honored. And so, in one sense, it's that our heart is laying before someone in order to exalt that person, in order to demonstrate how exalted they ought to be. And so, young person, this week, as you went to Do Re no doubt you heard Brother Bobby over and over and over, the one that kind of led the group, he was really emphasizing the fact of who are we singing to? Who is the one that we are attempting to lift up? And so in our song, you'll notice how emphatic he was that people are attentive to what they're doing. Now, I would say in the house of God, remember, this is not a gathering of people meant to carry out a series of acts that over and over we do week to week. No, when God's church gathers together, particularly on a Sunday morning, now I might pause for a moment and say this, the purpose of God's church varies in different seasons. And we experience, and you have your whole life, different seasons where the church feels compelled to focus on different aspects of what God has called us to do. And there are seasons in which we feel the need to really focus on instruction. And no doubt if you come to our Wednesday night service, you'll know that most of our Wednesday night service is dedicated to the instruction of God's word and learning how to interpret the world around us so that we can develop a biblical worldview and respond to the world around us. There are other times where our emphasis, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, that we're to do the work of an evangelist. Or as Jesus said, as he was about to ascend up into heaven, that we should go therefore unto all nations and preach the gospel. There are times when we walk into the house of God this year, I counted, I preached nine funerals this year. And sometimes we come into the house of God because our brothers and sisters are discouraged in their mourning. And so we're coming into this house in order to encourage them. But let me ask you this question. What is our home base? Like, what is our default position? You leave your house every day and you all go all different places, but you always return back to your home. So what is the default position of the Lord's church when they're gathered together? I would contend this morning it's worship. It's worship. When we have no particular calling in a service, we're to worship. Now notice about worship, it is not horizontal, it's vertical. There are people in this room, I don't have any doubt, they would admit themselves that you have lost your dignity in the house of the Lord. Have you not? I have. I've lost my dignity in the house of the Lord from time to time. You've probably seen me, right? I've seen the snapshots and the pictures of what I'm doing up here whenever somebody freezes the frame, right? People send it to me and will say, ha ha, look at you, right? And uh, I don't, it doesn't bother me at all. 
Um, I'll lose my dignity. It's the only thing I lose my dignity doing that I know of. Worshiping the Lord. Because there is something about worship that is different than everything else. And it's who it involves. Us and the Lord. See, what we're doing when we worship is our hearts are completely disregarding the the surroundings. And we're attempting with everything that is in us to exalt the name of God and Christ as high as we can. And so this week we heard over and over at the Del Rey Me camp, you want to do it first well. You want to sing well. And I would echo that sentiment this morning, not only to those that attended that camp, but to all of us today, that when we come into the house of God, you no doubt are professionals, and in your profession, you, uh, you put forth a, a great amount of effort to accomplish certain things, but the, is it not true that the more important the client, the more effort you put into satisfying them, the more that you want them to be pleased, because what you're doing for them, you know that they're worthy based upon perhaps what they're paying you or the treatment that they've given to you. You know that they're ones that you're going to give all of your effort to because in a sense, they deserve it. This morning is not the same thing true for the house of the Lord, right? If we're coming into the house of the Lord, our worship ought to be done well, right? Our music ought to be thought about, right? The first Sundays of the month, we have choir practice. I would encourage all of you to come. Why? Because we're practicing the music that we might exalt Christ. There have been a number of times in our music practices where we begin to sing the praises of the Lord, and guess what? They begin to stir in our hearts that it no longer becomes a practice. It becomes in and of itself a worship or a worship service because our hearts are exalting the Lord. And I think all of us would agree that the greatness of God, as Sister Carol testified about this morning, that he has been a blessing both to her life. But as I look out upon this crowd, we are uh, an eminently blessed people beyond most people in the history of the world that has ever been known. And yet God, for whatever reason, has blessed you with your life and all of the good things that have transpired from the day you were born to whom you were born to, to the location you were born, to the freedom you've enjoyed, to the sound of mind, to the friendships, to the church, to the salvation of your soul, to the protection of yourself during hardship, during, to the friend that God has been during your time of grief. All of these blessings that God has compounded beyond our imagination and what God calls his people to do is to come into his house and just celebrate who he is for doing what he has done with all of our hearts. Now, I don't know how to say this without it coming out the wrong way. So no, that's not my intention. There is a deadness in American Christian worship today, largely. The environment. Now, I want to stress today, I know that we don't have to be like our African brothers and sisters, lively with tambourines and drums. I know we don't have to be that way to worship. But let me put it to you this way. Is the reason that we are not that way 
because we're afraid of what the people around us think. Have you ever been in a service before and you felt like clapping to the beat? I have. There was a song, and I was wanting to get my heart, my body in a place where I was just free. And I hesitate. Have you ever sung and the people around you aren't singing very loud and you want to project but you're hesitant to because the people around you are kind of mumbling and so you don't want to sing loud but sometimes you get to songs like How Great Thou Art and your heart is full and you want to lose sight. Now, do you ever do that at home or in the car by yourself? I do. Right? Same thing on the piano sometimes. Sometimes my worship comes through playing the piano. I know the lyrics. God knows the lyrics. And sometimes I want to make a beautiful melody to him that expresses my heart. But so often what inhibits people is custom. It's not customary for us around here to do things like that. And so there are these fears as to what people are going to say or think or snickering. Now I'll say this. Be careful when you tease people about getting filled up in the Lord. Be careful. Somebody shouts. A couple weeks later you kind of tease them about it a little bit. Because guess what? Satan uses those things. He can't. To inhibit people. Because in that moment, they were thinking about the Lord. They were uninhibited by thoughts of others. They were uninhibited by the things that normally dragged them down from freely worshiping. But sometimes, there's no doubt you've experienced, your heart becomes so full, there's nowhere else for it to go but into your body. Right? And your body begins to respond. And that's what's going on here with David. David has seen a kingdom. Now, now this is a really important point to notice here. Michael had grown up in a kingdom where there was no Ark of the Covenant. Right? During Saul's reign, it had been taken. And so she did not know what it was like to have God at the center of the kingdom. And so her perspective, so think of this, a new nation with, or excuse me, a new kingdom has been born under her father, right? He is the first king of Israel. And so all of the traditions, just like with George Washington and our republic, all of those traditions are often created with the first. And so Saul is growing this kingdom and he is creating all of these precedences as a king. That many kings will feel the necessity to follow after. And so she has grown up and her father the king is setting all of these precedences. And yet these precedences are void of the symbol of God's presence. The ark being the center. And so Saul does all of these things out of the will of God. But as the Bible tells us about him. I would assume This is my assumption here. How do you know how to be like a king other than to look at other kings around you? I think that's what Saul did. And I think the Bible's, the spirit of of, of some readings would suggest that. He's looking at the behavior of other kings. So that's the way he's acting. But those kings don't have what we have. 
And so maybe a king should sit on a throne and maybe he should have a scepter and maybe he should only let the most dignified and intelligent and educated and noble people come to him. If you're fashioning yourself after a worldly king. But David is not a king after the prestige of man, nor of the respect of man, nor of the desire to emulate those kingdoms around him. He is a man after God's own heart. Thus, a man after God's own heart is going to act differently than a man looking to satisfy the culture and customs around them. And so here, David recognizes for the first time in this kingdom... We're going to have a capital where God is at the center and where his heart's desire was to build a beautiful temple for this king or for for God and for the ark. And so he begins to bring it in and he is overwhelmed with the idea that God is going to be with his people and he can't contain it and it meets its way out. Have you ever wondered if maybe God's not with us because we wouldn't be that excited if he was, right? Like what if God sees in our hearts a genuine fear of what each other thinks and that's what's inhibiting part of our worship? Young person today, I want to encourage you to do something. Break that trend. Break that trend. Because what David does here is so full of courage and wisdom. The first thing he does is he loses sight of the world and he just worships. However it comes out, it just comes out. Oh, and he's dancing and he's jumping and he's shouting is what the Bible says. But notice what happens also. The people of Israel begin to follow him. I love that, don't you? They begin to realize it's okay. It's okay to relax a little bit. It's okay not to be so concerned with the thoughts of people around you. It's okay to get caught up in worship. That's different than enthusiasm. There's a difference, right? Many organizations today, it's the hype. It's the emotion. And you've been in services and I've been in services where very talented people are able to play the chords of your emotion on the instruments. They're able to use their voices to bend and mold how you feel. That's not what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about people who are not concerned about the mode of expression, but are concerned about the heart that is laying before the Lord in a state of worship. Here. He's just letting it fly. And notice in the state of worship, what he also does, he gets very generous. I find that very interesting. He says, you know what? I'm going to give as God has given to me. I find people who are really set on worship are generous people as well. Why? Because they're not thinking so much down here. They're they're thinking up there. And I think, you know what? This is only going to be here for a little while. And God, by his own providence, has allowed me to accumulate all of this. And my heart is so full towards worshiping God and blessing him that I'm going to bless his people because of how much I love him. Then what happens? He gets done with the whole day. No doubt, a wonderful day. If you were to ask David, I believe one of the highlights of his whole kingship, he might have even picked this day right here. The day God's presence came among us. And yet, just as Satan works, 
at nighttime. He enters his chambers, the most intimate place that he has. And the devil is still lurking to try to cause him to prevent him from worshiping like that again. And it comes from his own wife. Now, what I marvel in David about, this is the second time I can think of where someone falsely accusing him or someone making fun of him does not deter him in the least. He is so confident that what he is doing is right that even when somebody close to him begins to try and sabotage his spiritual life, it doesn't bother him a bit. Remember that day in in 1 Samuel chapter 17? Now, again, this just shows the amazing why God esteems David so highly. David is about to go fight Goliath the giant. That's enough of a, a battle in and of itself, right? If you're about to go do something big, there are times when if I'm going to go do something, my wife will bring something up and I'll just say, I can't talk about that right now. I'll talk about it later, but I can't get that in my mind. I've got to focus on the task ahead and then afterward, I can worry about all those things. Here David is about to take on a giant that for 40 days, all of the best army in Israel or all the best soldiers in Israel will not even think about going and fighting. And right at the last minute as he is volunteering to go, his older brother, the one that was esteemed, the one that was thought of to have been the next king by even the prophet, one that held some prominence amongst the brothers and the family and the army, says to him, I know the pride and the naughtiness of thy heart that you've just come down to see the battle. He makes a false accusation as to the intent of David's heart. And David looks at him and he says, is there not a cause? Completely ignores what his brother says and is ready to go and serve God the way God has called him to. And then here again, we see that same quality in David. Here he has gone out before the king, or before the kingdom. He has worshipped God before all of the people, and the people have followed suit. And it's been a great day of joy because the presence of God is now back with his people. And as he's about to retire for the night, as he's about to find some rest and satisfaction, there the closest one to him says, what a fool you look like today. And she says it as though assumed that it's already true. Notice how she says it. Verse 20. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. Notice the expression that she, it's one of ridicule. You idiot. Look what you did today. Now think of this. This is coming from someone who knows what the kingdom is like. She's not one that he married that was a peasant or a commoner. This is coming from someone who ought to know what royalty is like. So think of the more weight that it would hold in the heart as it prodded and poked at David's heart. And yet notice David's response. He is so resolved that truly worshiping God from the heart, regardless of what people think, is so vital to worship. Here's how he responds. And David said unto Michael, it was before the Lord. That's the first thing he says. What I did today was before the Lord. I want you to know today, if you're a younger person and you get up to sing this song and you are praising the Lord and your voice cracks... 
and you go off key and you hit wrong notes on the piano and you hear people snicker out in the audience, were you doing it before them or were you doing it before the Lord? Because what God sees is your heart. And when a person is coming forward and they are with a full heart trying to worship the Lord, doesn't matter what people think. There is a disgusting Christian music culture today that is show business. And it has no place in the house of the Lord. We don't need professional singing. We don't need people who know what lyrics to crescendo on and what lyrics to try to stir people's emotions with. We need people whose hearts and eyes are fixed on the Lord and that their songs are meant to worship Him. That can be found in the lyrics of what we're singing. It's really important that we know what we're singing. That our words are words of praise. What I have found, unfortunately, is sometimes the songs with good lyrics don't have very good melody. Sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. And sometimes people shy away from those songs because they don't just get this Rhythm with it. And I would say if that is the case, then that we're gravitating too much towards rhythm and sound than we are the words. You see, if a person is really concentrated, you know, when you're singing in the house of the Lord, your mind ought to be going to not just you know it so familiarly, but what's coming next in the lyric. Like you're thinking, you're concentrating upon The truth. You're concentrating on Lord. This is my heart when I hear songs like great is thy faithfulness. Does that not impel you to sing it to the Lord? Because it's a narrative that a person is speaking to God. They're telling him they're marveling. They're celebrating his faithfulness to them. And how it is noticeable, not only in all that is around them, but on his provision of Jesus for our unworthy hearts and souls. And so a person is calling out to God in that. And they're saying, God, you are faithful. It's slow. It can be draggy at times, the the melody, can't it? But the words, the richness of the words never change because the truth never changes. God is faithful. This morning, hear this. David, he does not blink an eye at her criticism. He says, oh well. And he actually takes it a step further. He says, you know what? If I look that way today, I'm going to even look worse tomorrow when I double down and keep doing it. Because I'm going to keep on worshiping the Lord. So here's what I would say to our young people today. You go to music camp for two weeks. And they teach you, sit on the front of your seat. Sit up. Why? Because you can breathe and sing easier when you're sitting up. Project. Follow the notes. Think about the music. Have your heart Godward. Start whenever it's time to start. Finish when it's time to finish. Why are you Because do- you're doing it as well as you can. Why? Because you want to offer that to the Lord. All right, one thing that 
I began to feel convicted about whenever I was in high school is that I would do things very excellently in school, but then when I came into the house of the Lord, it's like the environment didn't demand I do my best. So I wouldn't do my best. But if you're ever going to change the culture of the kingdom, like David does, you've got to be willing to ignore the errors of the previous way of doing things. You've got to be able to be ridiculed by the old king, by the old way of doing things. See, I think it's a wonderful thing. You know what I think some people are drawn to in churches that are not really churches? That's one part of service that they might get right sometimes. Sometimes. You ever, start, you ever stepped into a church that, again, I'm just being blunt this morning, is not a sound church, but they start the service? And the people are there and their eyes, at least, are God-focused. They're all singing. They're all standing. They're all eager to worship the Lord. And you notice in some of the songs, some of the songs I don't like, some songs I don't like here, right? It's anywhere you go, you're going to find that. But a lot of the songs, if you look at the lyrics and, and, and listen to the words of them, are exalting God. In a culture today that is all about me, it is vital that when we come into the house of God, it is not about us. A couple weeks ago, I made this request. I said, can we pivot the early part of our service from being all about the sickness and the death to being about praise and worship? And I doubled down on that message today in a different form of our service, and that is the singing, the expression of our hearts. Now, I, I think... Music is such a special creation of God, don't you? Isn't it just an amazing thing that God has given us? There is something, even if you're not a musically inclined person, you have to admit there is something all in, something so expressive about music. Something so expressive about harmony. Something so expressive about how you can... Whenever I play a song on the piano, one of the things I'm listening to when I'm, when I'm playing are what the lyrics are saying. And here's the reason why. is because with the music, you can create the mood of what's being said with the sound. So if you want conflict, pressure, burden, you can create that dissonance in music that gives that expression. So imagine that God has given us something where we can collectively, both with words, offer expression to Him of thankfulness, but then also with the combination of sounds, express the thought, both, to Him as a form of thanks, as a form of worship. I think that's what God's called us to do. I think it's a wonderful thing when somebody who is not musically inclined sings because they want to worship. I do. I think it's a great thing. And I'll finally say this, and I'm done this morning. Our younger people need our encouragement, but they need our example. They need to see us worship. Wonderful thing we paid for them to go to do re do it again in a heartbeat. I hope that God graces us with the ability to do that year after year after year. But sending them down there to learn how to do it from them and then not coming and watching us do it, 
I don't think it's going to work. I think what they ought to see is this subtle shift that takes place. That our minds, both in our testimonies and our songs, are being shifted from all the hard things about this life to all the greatness of God, both in this life and in the next. This morning, the element that I wanted to express more than anything is that David did not care what people think. And if you are ever going to worship the Lord in a public setting, there has to be an element where you don't care what people think. Let me say this. If you are inhibited from testifying because of what people think, realize that you are allowing the thoughts of other people to deprive you of an opportunity to worship God. Somebody says, I'm not good with words. I just blubber. Blubber for the Lord. I mean it. Get up. And trip all over yourself in words to worship God. Why? I would say that almost magnifies your worship, don't you think, to God? Like God already knows it's the stumbling block for you. God already knows that you want to do everything you can to not do it because of how embarrassed you'll feel. So imagine the double honor that you give God to stand up and not only with your words testify, but then overcome the obstacle of not testifying by just openly blubbering before all people about the goodness of God. Do you not think that God sees a double honor in that in comparison to someone who is articulate and easily able to express themselves? I would say so. I would say a person who says, I'm terrified, but I'm going to worship anyway. I pray this morning God would give us that, a heart of worship today. I think, just my, my opinion, I think it's missing today. I think it's missing. Let's worship. Worship the Lord in our services, especially when we come in on Sunday mornings. I hope you'll be prompt. I hope when Sister Ashley says, turn to, you turn there. And then when we sing, we sing. That's what we were taught this week. That's what we were taught this week. And it was right. And I hope our young people will not only do it there, but will do it here. That you will bring life to worship. That's our message this morning. I hope, hope it's taken in the right way. I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to be harsh. It's not my intent. If anything, I want to see just a subtle shift in that direction, and I believe it would be of great benefit to our church if we did.